Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coastal Conundrum podcast, a podcast about the art of developing and implementing science-based coastal policies that strike a balance between coastal ecosystems, economies, and communities in a dynamic coastal landscape that is getting progressively more dynamic as a result of climate change. Today, we have a really outstanding show. Our guest uh, is an alumna of the uh, American Shoreline Podcast Network podcast, uh, Nicole LaBeouf the Assistant Administrator for NOAA's National Ocean Service. We will be catching up with Nicole to talk about what the nation's premier coastal and ocean agency has been up to since we last talked, and with a focus on activities related to enhancing coastal resilience in the face of climate change impacts and the promotion of green infrastructure. But first, an important word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So welcome to the show, Nicole, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your very hectic schedule to be on the Coastal Conundrum podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Uh, Nicole, it's been more than 18 months since we last talked, um, and I wanted to circle back and find out what has been going on with uh, NOAA's National Ocean Service since then. Um, To begin with, there have been a few personnel changes at the Ocean Service and at NOAA. And as a matter of fact, this past July, you were formally appointed as NOAA's Assistant Administrator for the National Ocean Service. Uh, You had been in an acting position the last time we spoke. And I would like to note uh, that in my humble opinion, I think this is a huge plus for NOAA and our nation's coast. So a belated congratulations to you, Nicole. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be um, in my role officially, uh, and it's wonderful to um, be able to lead this organization um, full-heartedly, and also to have uh, Dr. Rick Spinrad back at NOAA as our NOAA administrator. So lots of really positive changes. Right. I was, I was about to, um, to note that as well, about Rick Spinrad being uh, sworn in as the administrator. Um, and that's been the first in about five years. Um, from, from your perspective, what is this confirmation meant for, for NOAA and for the National Ocean Service? Well, Bill, as you just noted, we, we haven't had a, a named administrator in, in a number of years. Um, and even though the hardworking folks across NOAA continue to do their jobs, it does really help to have that stability um, at the top. Um, having Dr. Spinrad um, back at NOAA is particularly um, exciting because he has held uh, several roles leadership roles at NOAA, including as um, the chief scientist, which was his last role, but also in my chair as the assistant administrator for the National Ocean Service and as the assistant administrator for NOAA's research arm. So Dr. Spinrad knows his way around. Uh, We're very lucky to have him. And like I said, having uh, that stability at the top, uh, having someone who knows the organization well to lead us is more important than ever as we go into this dynamic time, even more so 
um, in, in coastal uh, management and coastal resilience. Well, it's really great to have an administrator that, that gets what you do, I imagine. Um, uh, so that must be great. Um, a second change, uh, I think uh, we all know, is the global pandemic. Um, can you tell the audience how uh, the Ocean Service has responded to the COVID pandemic? Um, has the management or missions of the service changed at all? Uh, and are there any major lessons learned from your perspective? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Of course, COVID has changed all of our lives, uh, personally and professionally. At the National Ocean Service, it's been um, it's been a, a, a real journey because so much of our operations are in the field. Um, they require hands-on work with water level sensors and buoys. And uh, even working with uh, visitors in visitor centers and engaging with the public. And so, as you might imagine, a lot of that uh, work, that hands-on operational work, has had to shift. Um, we're doing um, the priority work, but um, having to select um, uh, which work gets done and really utilize uh, comprehensive safety protocols to make sure our staff remain uh, safe from COVID-19. And so it has required um, some real work internally um, and from our teams. I will say across the organization, our leaders and staff have stepped, stepped up and demonstrated a huge amounts of compassion and creativity in getting the mission done whilst keeping staff safe. Um, and in some ways, we have been able to enhance our mission through um, the you know online learning and educational programs, the demand for those pro those operations have really gone through the roof. Um, we have continued in our response to um, uh, coastal storms like Hurricane Ida. Um, that work continues, of course, and um, we've kept um, you know our coastal communities safe and prepared throughout this experience. Uh, I will say it's it's strange. I'm in the office today, but I'm probably the only one on this entire floor, and um, it'll be interesting to see how things how things take shape going forward. And I imagine it's going to be a a little bit of time before uh, there are many more folks over at the office. That's a nice segue uh, talking about some of the, the the missions and things you've been doing. So so what's been going on at NOS since uh, we talked at the Social Coast back way back in 2020? Um, can you give us some highlights? And, but, but, and before we dive in um, really deeply, I wanted to just put a plug in for the, um, the National Ocean Service website, which is oceanservice.noaa.gov. Um, for those that want to take a really deep dive into the many, many, many facets of NOAA's Ocean Service, um, some of which we might not get into much detail today. But uh, this is really a fantastic website, Nicole, with tons and tons of great information. And uh, anything else you'd like to um, kind of help our, our, our listeners uh, guide uh, into that website? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a phenomenal resource, whether you're an educator uh, or a student uh, or whether you're looking for real-time water levels. Like I can tell you, for example, I had my eyes peeled on what's called our coastal inundation dashboard for the entire approach of Hurricane Ida to the Louisiana border um, or to the coastline. That's giving you real-time water levels at sensors um, across our coasts. Uh, so that's, you know, um, a really 
news you can use as it's happening. We also have so many wonderful offerings for um, underwater adventures when you can't get out in and do some scuba diving or snorkeling or you're locked in your house, you know, um, you can uh, get onto our website and do some underwater tours, some virtual tours of the National Marine Sanctuaries, for example. So there's a lot of great content. Uh, I really highly recommend uh, whether you're a coastal practitioner and you're looking for our digital coast and all of its tools or whether you're just an ocean enthusiast and you want to learn more about how you can prevent marine debris um, from entering our waterways, the Ocean Service website is phenomenal. Yes, and, and it's also just a, a great source of great images, too, that you guys make available to the public. And, and I know I've used a, a number of those from time to time, uh, and that's great. The last time we spoke, uh, you had talked about the Ocean Service being the Swiss Army knife of NOAA, and that is the, the service with the broadest mission in NOAA. Um, so if you can please tell our audience what those various pieces of, uh, the ocean service, um, have done since 2020 and are poised to do, um, with regard to increasing the resilience of coastal communities to climate change impacts. And, and then secondly, I hope you could really dig in a little bit more into, um, some of the activities related to, uh, what people call green infrastructure or natural and nature-based, uh, resilient infrastructure. Yeah, happy to. You know, one of the um, one of the the benefits, one of the greatest benefits of being a Swiss Army knife is that you have a variety of tools at your disposal for whatever your problem or your need is that comes up. What we are finding increasingly across the National Ocean Service, but also across NOAA, not surprisingly, as we learn more about the interconnectedness interconnectedness of the earth systems is that we, when we interconnect and when we integrate our smarts and our programs, programs with one another, we can derive even greater value out of um, the information in the ocean that we're collecting um, and the forecasts that we're um, issuing. And so one of the pushes that we've done across uh, the National Ocean Service and across NOAA actually is to take that strength of being a Swiss Army knife, which is fine. Each of those individual tools is valuable, but saying how much more valuable could they be if they were working more closely together? And so that's been a real um, plus over the over the last couple of years is our ability to really begin to integrate. So, so uh, for example, the Ocean Service is integrating more with the Weather Service to issue rip current forecasts or harmful algal bloom forecasts via the forecast offices that the Weather Service um, operates. Uh, within the National Ocean Service, we're combining our modeling capabilities with some of our real-time data collection so that we can issue a greater, uh, more precise predictions of, say, sea level rise in the future. So really saying, hey, we've got a lot of good tools, but what if we combine them um, into uh, solving an initial or an, an individual problem? And we're finding that is working out amazingly. Likewise, this administration has really emphasized an all of government approach. So if you scale that up even further and you say, okay, federal agencies, how can you work more integratedly or more closely together to get greater value? And we're doing that across the board. And I'll, and I'll uh, expand on your, your question about nature-based solutions. So I represent NOAA, for example, on one of several 
interagency working groups that the White House has stood up um, to, to uh, take this all of government approach. And um, the one of the ones that I sit on for NOAA is the Coastal Resilience Interagency Working Group. And we have encouraged that working group um, and that's agencies like FEMA and HUD and DOT and DOD and others to bring to the table all of their best practices and guidance documents on nature-based solutions so that we can take a look, so we can talk about them and share those best practices with one another. And we're beginning to do that now um, as a means of making sure that we're utilizing the best approaches from across the agencies. This is particularly important as we are poised to, and we'll see how things go, but we are poised to um, go into a time here where agencies like um, Army Corps of Engineers and FEMA and the Department of Defense and others may have larger budgets to devote to climate resilient infrastructure. And along the coastlines, we know that to be climate resilient, we're going to need to use a, a blend of nature-based and hard infrastructure. And so getting those agencies together now so that they can talk across um, their programs and talk about each one another's best practices and see where there might be technological or expertise gaps that the others of us can fill um, is very important, I think, particularly now. And as we look toward um, what the future will bring along our coasts, we're going to have to really bring our A game. And I appreciate the all of government approach um, because it allows us to really um, complement one another and elevate that game across the federal government, particularly with, with nature-based solution. We know that natural uh, infrastructure like coral reefs and mangroves and marshes um, they're good for habitat, right? But they are amazingly effective at protecting our shorelines. And so um, really getting those conversations going, not just in a theoretical way, but what are we going to do on the ground to make sure that natural solutions and nature-based infrastructure is, is at the table when these, these conversations about how to spend infrastructure dollars are happening? That's that's really excellent, and and I noted that um, on the website there was a, a story about uh, NOAA's or National Ocean Services work with the Army Corps, um, as well as other partners, um, to put out uh, international guidelines on nature and nature-based features for flood risk management. Is that one of the examples of the uh, what you were just saying? Yeah, abs absolutely. That's a great example. We were so proud to be a part of that effort. Um, in fact, Dr. Spinrad wrote a foreword, I believe, in that particular document, and we helped to amplify the rollout of that document, even though it wasn't NOAA's per se. I think that's a great example of how we can work together towards solutions. Um, we can co-develop these solutions with other agencies uh, and make sure that, you know, they don't they don't have to hire all the expertise we have and and we certainly can't do the jobs that their missions for example have them doing uh, but we can work together and use the best across the organizations and raise the bar for how we consider nature-based infrastructure it's very exciting it's daunting but it's very exciting when other agencies come to you and say what does it mean to be climate resilient say hey i i got an answer for you right um, along those lines, uh, 
what or has the Ocean Service um, been doing much in the area of risk communication uh, or trying to, to educate um, the general public about risks and, and, and be able to better uh, let them understand what some of those risks are? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a good question. And we have been in the business for some time of helping uh, practitioners uh, communicate risk and uh, wrap their arms around the meaning of the data. Uh, that is something that we continue to strive towards and we need to work uh, with our colleagues again across NOAA and the social sciences to really understand um, whether our our data and our watches and warnings and our and our tools and services are being used if they if we're if we're creating a product and we think it's great and yet the public isn't using it to inform their decision making whether that's short term like an evacuation or long term like where to build their retirement home then that we're not doing our job we're not fully doing our job um, and that is something we continue to work on I think that encapsulating risk differently um, is essential. Uh, and I'll give you an example that is, is not the general public, but we are working, for example, with the Department of Defense to help them understand and communicate within their own ranks the risk to coastal military installations in a way that makes sense to DOD. And that has to do with uh, military readiness. It has. To, it's their language. It's how they speak their language about their facilities. And so, working with them to say we can interpret our data for you, but how do we need to bend that information and communicate that risk in a way that you, facility planners across DoD, can be convincing, right? And that's just one way that we really try and and ask what is needed before we go and develop something that may or may not be actually used. Well, you know, that's interesting because one of the, one of the things I was, I was thinking about asking you is, or, or talking about was, uh, I know in, when I was working um, for, for NOS and working in the resilience uh, arena, and it was fairly new that there was so much language that was so different amongst the, the differing agencies and at the, at the, federal level or at the state and local level, you know, and then one of the things that I think we always thought would be good was just sort of a common language. Um, but that's a, a really interesting twist on that, that in order to really communicate, sometimes you may have to put that in a language that is much more suited to a particular agency. Well, and I think that's a good point. I think we're also learning, Bill, that there are whole swaths of the general public, I'll say, that our message isn't getting to. And so we are being particularly mindful also of how we deliver our messaging and our products to communities that have been traditionally underserved and or maybe more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change along the coasts. And you know, at NOAA, it's like it's part of our culture. When we issue a issue a product or a warning, we don't mean for it to just go to some people. We mean for it to go to everybody. So when we find out that there are parts of, of vulnerable populations or underserved communities that aren't using that information, it kind of hits us where it hurts because we want to save lives. We don't want to be 
only getting our warnings out to some people. So we are actually conducting what we're calling equity assessments across some of our most um, widely distributed tools like Digital Coast, Sea Level Rise Viewer, um, across Sea Grant, which is another part of NOAA, um, and the Weather Ready Nation initiative, in fact, to ask ourselves the tough questions about are our products and warnings getting used by those communities that aren't always well served by the federal agencies. And so we are beginning to take a more pointed look um, and, and asking ourselves some tough questions because as you might imagine, there are a, a lot of these folks that we've been missing are also the ones that are most vulnerable to coastal hazards. Just about to say, it seems like there's a lot of research coming out now or, uh, that that is pointing the finger at those kind of um, non-traditional communities that that seem to be bearing the brunt of a lot of the climate change impacts and and negative aspects of sea level rise and flooding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's a that's a that's a huge job uh, because I could just imagine that there's a number of people, say Spanish speaking people. Um, and then what part of Spanish do you put those communications out in? I mean, there's lots of dialects and there's lot, it's, it's a huge job. It really is. It's, and I, uh, but I really, uh, applaud Noah for, for really taking, um, some, some leadership in that area and, and really, uh, uh, trying to, to address that really tough question. Um, any, any other aspects of, uh, of what, uh, the ocean service has been doing with regard to kind of enhancing, um, uh, coastal resilience. Oh gosh, we're doing, uh, quite a bit across the organization, um, and trying to really think, um, differently than we have in the past. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Just in the last few days, I've, um, been on, on the phone and speaking on panels and, and such about, um, the value of, uh, information in conveying, uh, you know, the state of affairs with with the climate crisis. And one of the conversations I just had was was lamenting about how, you know, ten years ago, twenty years ago, um, even thirty years ago, I, we were so we science a very broad um, a brushstroke there. We scientists were very um, concerned about maintaining time series. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we had uh, data on a regular basis coming in so that we had uh, information about what was happening that day because we could tell where it was in context with yesterday's and last year's and last decades, et cetera. And the time series data is still quite important for our work. But increasingly, data collected about yesterday and last week and last year is, is diminishingly valuable for helping us understand tomorrow and next week and next year. So what I'm saying is prediction is everything. Whether we're talking about the restoration of a coral reef or we're talking about risk to a particular coastal town, what has come before is not likely to resemble what we're walking into here today and going into the future. And so how we shift our entire mindset toward understanding what has not yet happened 
versus what we used to do, which is, well, let's look at all the things that used to happen or have happened and see how well we can understand those items. Um, that still has a place and those, those understandings can still be useful. But in terms of the accelerated rate of change along our coasts, I am emphasizing across the National Ocean Service that we need to be in the business of, of fortune telling or future telling, right? And how can we do that in such a way that is credible? It's not a crystal ball, right? It is, it has to be credible. It has to be transparent and understandable by the public, but it, it has to be about the future, whether you're planning to put a facility or um, where a fish stock is going to go, where a wind farm is going to go, everything will need a future predicted state. And so we're working hard at that. <laughs> and, and I would imagine that, that uh, I think uh, the Ocean Service has a number of modelers. And is that something in the modeling community that you guys are working uh, uber hard at? Absolutely. And we learn a lot from uh, modelers from other parts of NOAA. Um, the Weather Service has been issuing uh, weather forecasts, right, for, for a very long time. And, and um, those forecasts and those forecasters uh, have to rely upon models that get run over and over again. And the oceanographic models are different, right? But, but the premise is very much the same. And so one of the things we have been doing is syncing up the atmospheric and the oceanographic modelers so that they can talk with one another and couple their models, because guess what? The earth system is connected. <laughs> and so it makes no sense for the atmospheric modelers to sit somewhere, right? So duh, right? The, the world is connected. And so as we learn more about that, those modelers have more tangible steps that they can take to um, better uh, marry up their systems with one another. Um, and that's very important as we, as we try and look ahead. Um, it's also, I think, important to recognize that the ocean has been, oh gosh, I'm biased, right? I, I work for the National Ocean Service. The ocean has, has kind of been sidelined for a long time. It's the place that we drive boats over. You know, it's the place um, that fish come from. It's the place that maybe we go whale watching. Um, you know, maybe it's it's a, it's a place to swim. The ocean, uh, not surprisingly, because it's you know seventy percent of our globe, is increasingly understood to be a driver of weather patterns, a driver of the impacts of climate change. A, a sink for the impacts of climate change. You know, you, you've probably heard the phrase already, the ocean's taking all the heat. The ocean is taking the heat. Um, and we are beginning to see signals of that. But the understandings that we need to get to in the ocean and how it interacts with hurricanes and how it interacts with ocean life, and that is going to be the wave of the future. And I don't mean to um, create another pun there, but I will say that an understanding of the ocean and how it is affecting our daily lives is is where we're going. Wow, that's amazing. And one thing I just I I wanted to point out that one of the things I was looking at on the uh, the website was uh, some of the forecasting that you guys are doing for HABs, the harmful algal blooms. And I, I would note that I just saw an article today about the the governor of Florida putting. 
a pretty significant amount of uh, dollars towards um, water quality improvements to try to uh, um, try to deal with some of that uh, harmful algal bloom issues. And I, I think that that has been something that has really um, waked a lot of uh, the coastal uh, community as well as others into w- what's going on out there. Yeah, harmful algal blooms are, are, are diverse, right? It's not just one kind of event. Some are um, unsightly, and that's their biggest harm. Some are uh, irritate our airways and make people you know, cough and dizzy and have headaches, and that's their harm. Others poison our, our seafood. Uh, in the Great Lakes, for example, they can actually uh, toxify drinking water systems. So harmful algal blooms are a place where I would say it's a growth industry, right? Not just in terms of understanding the biologics and the ecosystem uh, interactions of these species and the physical properties of the, the water that they're in, but, um, but also um, how they affect humans, how they affect other uh, living creatures. And, um, and again, bring the modelers in. We got, we got to figure out where these creatures are going, uh, how long they're going to be there, when they become toxic. We're getting some good, innovative new technologies available to actually use machine learning and artificial intelligence to identify the cells um, in the water of what, you know, identify which species of, of algal bloom and, and tell us, you know, if they are in concentrations consistent with becoming toxic. Um, it's very important that we use all the tools in the toolbox. Um, and it is important that the states and the municipalities get an understanding of how, um, you know, contamination in the water systems can be contributing to this. Uh, and we can help by, you know, modeling some of that with them. Um, but it's good to see leadership um, where, where, you know, it's a regulatory issue and NOAA doesn't have authority over that. But if waters are being created where toxic algae, algae can, can proliferate, um, you know, that's something we, we need states to really get a handle on. Absolutely. Um, one thing that's it's becoming or jumping out at me as I'm looking at uh, some of the things you've been talking about, about, you know, kind of moving from uh, looking at past data collection to focusing on prediction, um, to, um, you know, the ocean interactions, understanding them um, uh, and, and being able to promote those in a credible and transparent manner, that's, um, that's probably going to come at a significant cost. Am I right? And, and if so, is, is NOAA having to realign its budget or uh, 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 do folks understand that it may take um, additional monies? Well, I think the, the first folks that have understood that in, in the last handful of years have been um, members of Congress. Um, the work of NOAA is, um, we, are, we are proud across NOAA to be, um, you know, serving all Americans. And that means uh, we are, we have a lot of trust uh, on Capitol Hill on both sides of the aisle. And I will say that um, developing um, you know, those trusted relationships getting up on the hill and briefing on harmful algal blooms or sea level rise or other issues um, and educating um, Congress about what it is that NOAA does um, has been very helpful. 
the this administration, of course, came in um, and has put a, a twenty a, a twenty twenty two proposed budget uh, out for consideration, and that included significant increases across NOAA's budget for climate observations and science, uh, and absolutely um, large proposed increases for coastal modeling, coastal resilience, the nature-based restoration and solutions. Um, and so we're working very closely with this administration and Congress, uh, hopefully to um, increase uh, NOAA's budget. It would be the largest increase in NOAA's budget in its history um, if we were to achieve that. Um, I do think there is a recognition that this, this stuff is hard and it does take resources uh, we'll just continue, like I said, to develop those trusted relationships. And as the, the landscape, the budget landscape changes, uh, make sure that we are being uh, very clear about where it is that NOAA sees um, its, uh, its own programs advancing and where we work with partners um, like states or universities or others who might be better suited for those roles. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of educating, right? That, Congress, it's, you know, members of Congress, they have to keep track of all kinds of things. So it just has to take some, take some, take some effort to keep those relationships up. Well, and that's a nice segue uh, to a question I wanted to talk to you about. Um, the last time you were on the American Podcast Network, you talked about the importance of partnerships to achieve to achieve desired outcomes um, that, you know, no one agency could do it all. And that um, the Ocean Service uh, was in a unique position to be able to convene a number of the partners uh, in multi-agency discussions on some of the coastal and ocean issues. Um, I know you touched on it a little bit. Are, is there, are there any other new partnerships or, 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 or similar activities that uh, you'd like to, to talk about? Yeah, so I, you know, I'll say we work very closely at the National Ocean Service uh, with uh, with our partners, with the uh, Integrated Ocean Observing System uh, Association, with the National Astronaut Research Reserve Association, with the Sanctuary Foundation, and others. Um, and th their voices are being amplified further through this again, this all of government approach. Because when I go to the Coastal Resilience Interagency Working Group or the Flood Resilience Interagency Working Group or the America the Beautiful Interagency Working Group, I can bring their voices um, to a place where they're not just now NOAA's partners or NOS's partners. They are partners in those efforts. You know, for example, um, when I work on the America the Beautiful initiative, which is um, the uh, initiative that this administration has um, begun to conserve the lands and waters of the U.S. Um, we can bring not just NOAA's resources, but we can bring um, the expertise of others in this space that we partner with and that have been working toward achieving these kinds of conservation goals for a long time. Um, and so it, it is, it's really gratifying to be able to bring their voices into these places, um, including how they approach um, you know, approach these issues. Uh, we are spending a lot of time on uh, the uh, offshore wind goal uh, that this administration has given us, which is to um, attain 30 gigawatts of uh, renewable, offshore renewable um, energy by the year 2030. So um, that has meant a large focus on 
the, the sustainable siting um, and placement of wind farms. Uh, and so, gosh, in order to be able to know whether you're, you're siting a wind farm in the right place, you got to bring a lot of folks to the table, um, the, the fishing industry, um, the conservationists, the, the modelers, you know, everybody. And so um, that's been, it's, it's been wonderful to have those fora at a very high level um, where we can bring these voices in from our partners and, and have them heard um, toward, toward attaining those goals. Excellent. Um, and, and I, I, I know they must appreciate, uh, Noah championing some of those, uh, things that they are doing or, or resources that they can bring to bear at a national level. And I, I, I think that's great. Um, as far as, uh, other activities with regard to increasing resilience of the coast, are there any that we've missed that, that you'd really like to touch on? Oh, gosh. Along the coast, I think um, um, I I would highlight the continued uh, work we're doing uh, with the states um, to to increase the capacity of states and their partners um, to even engage in some of these higher level uh, conversations and larger uh, projects and initiatives. Um, Because as, as, you know, as we all know, I mean, the climate change impacts are going to be highly variable on the ground. They're going to be highly localized, and so will the solutions. And so finding a way to uh, really hand off and handshake at one stage to another, for all the way from the White House to the community organizers um, uh, on the ground, um, talking with the faith-based faith-based institutions or, um, you know, the local populations that have been underserved for so long. Um, that's really where a lot of the work is going to be are those handshakes and those handoffs um, to make sure that um, the, 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 actually the resources flow to the places that are needed, uh, that the information flows um, both directions so that communities are involved in decision-making uh, we're putting a lot of uh, energy into those kinds of activities. Um, we're also, um, you know, really um, trying to do listening in a new way. Again, with the equity assessments, we're hosting equity roundtables, uh, climate equity roundtables. We've already held um, one in Connecticut with regard, well, virtually, <laughs> um, but with Connecticut um, uh, folks uh, on flooding. And we're going to do another uh, regarding the Gulf of Mexico here in a little while. So doing a lot of listening, um, trying to figure out uh, where the barriers are to NOAA information um, and uh, making sure that we're all moving as smartly as possible because, you know, like I said, we're, we've, we've been doing this work for a long time, but the landscape um, has never changed more rapidly, um, you know, financially, socially, um, but just in terms of the, the conditions um, of the planet. And we're all going to have to really step up and figure out how we keep those lines of communication open and that everybody is working um, in their lane. And like I, like I like to say, they're using their own superpower um, so that each of us is playing to our strengths um, and then letting somebody else play to theirs, I think is going to be very, very important um, as we better predict um, the intensification of hurricanes as we work with engineers to um, plan out the next generation of the federal flood 
risk management standard um, as we uh, you know, map the ocean floor and enter um, a real new era of ocean information as the currency. I think um, you know, we're going to have a lot of opportunities um, for that. I mean, if you think about it, we've, we've spent centuries extracting things from the ocean that we didn't give back. You know, we, we took the fish, we didn't borrow it. Um, we, we are taking, you know, oil and gas. We're not borrowing it. We're not giving anything back to the ocean. Um, but the most renewable resource of all is information. And the more eyes we can get on the ocean and the ears that we can get under the surface to figure out what's going on with the ocean and then use that information for the public good is something that I, I think we're really going to be emphasizing, whether it's with the siting of offshore wind um, or the understanding of how the currents are going to affect the weather, not just a week from now, but maybe a year from now. How cool would that be? Um, so I, I would say the sky's the limit, but that sounds so atmospheric. Um, I'm going to say the horizon's the limit, and we're really, we're, we're really, um, really having to um, take stock and and figure out where our place is in preparing preparing us all for the impacts of climate change. Well, you know, I, I'm just um, I'm I'm astonished at at kind of some of the really cool new directions you guys are going in the, and how you're rethinking kind of uh, the ocean services role, but, but building on a lot of those great networks like your, you know, your coastal management, your national estuary reserve, the sanctuary programs to, to be able to transmit some of those ideas down to the various, you know, different levels at the state or local levels. Um, and I, it really seems to me that that the ocean service is is well positioned to to really be able to do that, and uh, and and it's really great to have some real real you know kind of thought leaders kind of pushing that envelope. So you know that's just uh, to me that's really great, and 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 all the environmental justice work is uh, you know I think um, long overdue, and I think this is great to see that this is moving forward in a really. Uh, kind of far more than just lip service kind of way. Um, uh, so I appreciate that. Um, let me see. Um, so maybe a question about um, from your vantage point, which I think is, is kind of unique. Are you seeing any really interesting national trends that you'd like to share with the listeners? The most pervasive national trend uh, and perhaps um, the algorithms in my newsfeed have, 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 have tricked me. Um, but I think we're talking about climate change. And I think we're getting into um, a reality that folks at NOAA have, have known for a long time, which is this is not a future event. We are, it, what you see is climate change. It is happening now. Uh, and I think the faster we can uh, have a dialogue about, you, you know, get past whether or not it's happening, get past when it's going to come because it's here and we can begin to talk about how we can adapt to those impacts. Depending on the kind of impact, um, and there are plenty uh, to choose from, uh, the, the, the ramifications and the, and the result of climate change 
is baked in for the next 40, 60, 80 years, depending, it's 100 years, depending on the impact that you're talking about. And so what that means for practitioners is that we have to divide and conquer. There has to be parallel hard work on mitigation, which is to say, how do we control greenhouse gases? How do we get that down? How do we, you know, get, get those things under control and adaptation? Because the time for mitigating alone has passed. We are in the moment of adaptation. And so the faster we can have that conversation and say, hey, all you folks working on mitigation, Godspeed, right? The rest of us have got to work on adaptation and don't, you know, don't, this is not a competition. <laughs> they both have to happen and they both have to have begun. And we have begun those things, but we have to move into, okay, so now. And I did read an interesting article the other day that has, has kind of gotten me hopeful and started to wrap my head around something else. And that the article, the premise of the article was that college counselors were noticing that the kids coming into undergrad and uh, graduate studies were almost binary in nature in their interests, that they either want to, they want to save the world from climate change or they have just turned away from it completely. And that there is a huge surge in young people that want to save the world from climate change. And you can really write your ticket in any degree program, engineering, uh, you know, IT, uh, communications, um, environmental justice, law. I mean, any one of the fields that you can even imagine and the ones you cannot imagine can contribute if you put your mind to it and can be a part of preparing our planet for climate change, whether it's mitigation or adaptation. There are certainly professions out there that won't. But I would, I, I have begun to realize that there is probably not a field out there that could not be, and I'll say positively twisted, to be in the service of our planet and its people and its living creatures. And I encourage everyone to figure out what that is. What do you like to do? Oh, you know, I like to sew. Okay, well, go sew something that doesn't have toxic chemicals in the fabric, right? What do you like to do? I like to write. Okay, get out there and convince, you know, um, some sector of the population that they can also contribute to the adaption or the adaptation to climate change and the preparation for climate change. I don't think we have much other choice than to get on board. Well, I, I would certainly agree with you on that. I, um, you know, I was just, I was just reading that, you know, Noah had noted that the summer of 2021 is neck and neck with the dust bowl summer for the hottest on record. Um, you know, and we've seen, you know, just rapidly intensifying hurricanes, extensive flooding, um, intense rainfall events, high tide flooding. I mean, almost seems like every week there's something on the news. And and I I I hear you what you're saying that that uh, you know for the folks that um, want to do something, there are tons and tons of of 
of opportunities out there. I mean, working in the private sector to me is probably one of the biggest, you know, is, is trying to get that that message into, you know, businesses and, uh, you know, as they're going and, and they have a lot of resources that they can bring to bear. Um, but uh, I, I, I wonder if there's any insight that you might have as far as um, how uh, us out here in the hinterlands um, can, uh, can help bring a little bit more urgency and immediacy um, to some of the government and non-government actions. I know that in the long run, you know, going into a profession is, is, is what I'm hearing you say. Uh, how about in the, in the shorter term? I think for, that's a really hard, that's a really hard one to answer, but I think for those who have not discovered that climate change is here, I would, I would, I would say to them that it's like, it's like not yet knowing that gravity is here, right? Gravity is everywhere. It is a force that's acting upon everything. It's going to act on it in the future. It's going to act on it in the past. It's going to act on it in the present. Climate change or climate or environment or however you want to call it is just that. It is everything that's happening. And so anything that can be done to shift the mindset, whether it's what you wear, what you eat, what you drive, where you vacation, everything will be shifted. And it's really hard at the local level to do that when you've got, you know, this referendum and this thing going on and then, you know, the dog catcher's out of control and all these things. But if everything is put through the lens of am I improving the planet, everything has to be put through that lens. And it's, it, we can't walk through the world without gravity kicking our butts, right? The, it is just there. And so how do we begin to, in our daily lives, just say it's here, it is among us. And I think that as we can do that and not label it some big thing or that or the other that can get into arguments, but to see it in everything. And as soon as we see it in everything, the solutions and the avenues for adaptation will become more readily apparent to us. One of the things that I think just from our conversation today and kind of getting back to that point that you made about the binary, you know, kind of what they're seeing the college, uh, you know, people coming into college, either, you know, wanting to do something or just kind of, you know, putting their hands in their head and going, oh, no, you know, that that hopefully that that messages like you've had today about the the positive things that that Noah and you know all sorts of other folks are are doing may give some people some hope that hey this is not you know um, you know the the total doom and gloom it, certainly there's going to be some you know effects and difficult things that people are going to have to deal with but it's something that we can get through and uh, and and it's going to be a lot easier and better to do that if you take your hands you know out of your head, <laughs> out of your head and kind of look up and see what you can do about it. And what I would say is, I think if you put it into the, if you think you have to be a climate scientist or you have to work for NOAA or you have to, you know, be a meteorologist or a model or something to save the planet, then you've not yet. It, acknowledge that it is everything around you, right? 
And so if you wish to, ha- if, you, if your talent is, you know, as a chef, or if your talent is in making shoes, or if your talent is whatever your, you know, there are going to be fewer and fewer professions, lucrative professions, where being a part of the climate solution is not central. And so I think there's money-making opportunities, there's life-saving opportunities, um, and I think there's going to be so many fields, particularly ones that link disciplines, right? The medical profession and climate, the mental health profession and climate, right? You could be a psychiatrist and be a part of this, right? It's about shifting the entire mindset. I know that I think the last time that we talked, we were down at the social coast and, you know, there was that whole idea of, you know, with all these hurricanes that the impact on both the general population and the responders, you know, is, is a real issue that people really need to take into account and look at. And, and I, I know that there's been a lot of research and, and work done along those lines. So who would have, who would have thought that when we came into the business <laughs> that we'd be talking about that? It's yeah. It, and and I, I like that idea of that, that, that really everybody can um, start to see how it's going to affect them and, and what they might do about it. If you think of, of this as really, and it, 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 it is not hopeless because what's happening is that opportunities are being opened up every single day. Opportunities for entry into the space, right? So it used to be that you had to be a climate scientist to be a part of this conversation. Now you can be anyone and be a part of the conversation and be a part of the action. Well, that might be interesting for... Uh for folks to to kind of um have some kind of workshop or whatever just to 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 give people some of those ideas uh you know that hey that this is really you know this is not a government uh only approach this is you know everybody on board we're going and here are some of the ways you can do that cuz maybe just people just aren't thinking that way yet well Nicole I want to be mindful of your time I know you have a tremendously busy schedule um, and I, we really appreciate you being able to spend some time with us today on the Coastal Conundrum and, and hope you would come back again um, and tell us, uh, give us some more updates um, on what's going on. I'll put one final plug in for the um, NOS uh, website. So please, everybody, take a look at that. There's just really great stuff going on there. Um, but to wrap up, is there, is there any final message you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, gosh. Well, I was reflecting the other day on one of the most timeless quotes um, that has been an inspiration, I think, for so many people. And um, here's where I mean that the opportunities are opening up every single day. The quote is, and I'm going to go there, it's Mahatma Gandhi, who said, be the change that you wish to see in the world, right? My first thought, being at the center of these conversations about climate, is how is that possible when all the changes are not what I want to see in the world? Because I took it so literally. Because I allowed it to feel like a place that I can't go because how can I be the change when the change is coming at me? 
and it's baked in and I can't control it. But even in that moment, there is an opportunity that just opened to reframe the meaning of a quote from Gandhi as it relates to climate change. So there is no end to how you can insert yourself into the conversation and into the solutions. They're everywhere. And I think that that changing of the mindset, that it is every single thing, and you just pick it and go for it, is what I would what I would say to anyone. If you can get your head around that, then let's let's go do this thing. Well, what a what a what a great thought to to leave with. I'm sorry, but it just doesn't sound like a, a typical government person talking. No, <laughs> in all my days. <laughs> It's it's really great, Nicole, to have somebody that is uh, as forward thinking as you um, to help us uh, shepherd our ocean resources and uh, into the um, into the future. And uh, so please uh, come back anytime you'd like and uh, love to continue the discussion. Bill, it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for this time. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be talking to you soon.